my um, vice president asked me, made me promise that I would tell you about our little education program that we have at Eden Valley. We have, uh, and by the way, I have these little cards here. I have only a small stack. If anyone is interested in these little cards, they're right there. You can pick them up after I'm done with you. In any case, we do have an education program at Eden Valley. It's only a six-month course. It's very practical, it's very short, and as far as I'm concerned, it's very good. <laughs> well, we teach what we call medical missionary work, which includes massage and hydrotherapy and natural remedies and all of these things. It also includes um, doing evangelism out in the community. And one of our goals, um, which I think we have achieved, is we have organized for ourselves studies like you would organize Bible studies, but these are on health. And in Colorado, it's very difficult uh, to get into the homes of the people. People are very secular there in Colorado. But we've organized studies like we would do Bible studies, but they're all on health. And by this means, we're able to get into the homes fairly easily. We have a lot of studies going on. And then these, bio, these, these health studies lead towards Bible studies, and it's much, much easier. The, the, the right arm of the message is getting us into their homes. And then they get interested in, in spiritual things, and by the time we're done with the health studies, then pretty soon we're able to get into their homes with Bible studies. Well, our course is called The Well, and if anyone is interested, it's not very expensive. I think that the last, the last six months course, which just ended, I think it was only $800 for the whole six months, and we feed you and house you and all the rest, and obviously we're losing money, uh, but, but we need to get ourselves established again. We're doing this, and out of the last course that we did, we had two of our students in their 40s who are requesting to be baptized. And so it's effective. Anyone has someone that has nothing to do would like to get a very practical little course. Welcome to Eden Valley. Let me put these here. Okay, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15. This is what we've been studying all week long. We're studying the parable of the prodigal son. We finished last night with the prodigal himself, the younger brother, and this evening we're moving on to begin a two-night study on the elder brother. Now, the younger brother, of course, was without God in the world. He got from his father all that he wanted. He went out into the world and he enjoyed life, which he thought was going to be enjoyable anyway. He turned his back on his father. He wanted to be independent. He wanted to be unrestricted. He wanted to be free to sin. That's what he did. But he found out that life was not that enjoyable out there. As a matter of fact, things got worse and worse and worse until he came to his senses about his spiritual condition. He came to his senses about his religious or his, his relationship with his father. And then he decided it was nonsense living in sin. And he came back to his father and there was great rejoicing over one soul that found salvation. Well, now we turn our attention to the elder brother. The elder brother, of course, is without God too. He is living independent of his father also, 
but what is messing up with his mind is that he's living independent of his father, but he doesn't know it because he has remained with the church and he doesn't understand that he is in dire straits. He's in trouble spiritually. How would you like to end up in the wrong resurrection after all is said and done? Thinking all along that your Christian experience, because it was externally right, that you were going to be a candidate for heaven, you were going to be saved in the kingdom, and you find out that you're raised in the wrong resurrection. What do you think you'll feel in that day? I don't know that you will feel it, but what do you think people who are risen, who arise in the wrong resurrection will feel? Oh, I tell you, it will be a terrible day, won't it? Well, you and I don't want to be there, for sure. That was the problem with the elder brother. That is the problem with Laodicea. Did you know that? Ellen White says Laodicea thinks everything is all right when everything is all wrong. Well, if everything is all wrong and we think everything's all right and we die in that condition, which resurrection do you suppose we'll come up in? Isn't that a scary thought? Well, there's no need to be afraid, really, because this week we've been studying righteousness by faith. We know where our assurance is. We know who our God is. We know what he's done on our behalf. And we may have salvation. But salvation leads to a deeper and deeper and deeper experience with the Lord. And that's what we want to study together. We're in Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at verse 25. <clears throat> now his elder son was in the field. Now keep in mind, this is a Christian, apparently, outwardly, externally. The, he's not out in the bars dancing and drinking and fornicating with harlots. He's in the field. He's in the mission field, if you please. He's working for his father. He's in the church's employ. As a matter of fact, verse 29 says that he kept all the commandments. At least he thought he kept all the commandments. He was keeping all the commandments externally, and yet there was something drastically wrong with his Christian experience. It's amazing to me, but it's possible to do things externally and be deceived by that into thinking that we're all right because we're doing everything just right as far as we're concerned, and we're all wrong. Verse 25, Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came, he drew nigh to the house, which you know in all the parables, the house represents the church. And so he drew nigh to the church, and he heard music and dancing. Now, I wouldn't have put that word there, dancing. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, don't take it too far. He heard music in any case, and he was confused by that. Now, it's amazing, isn't it? As far as I'm concerned, you see in verse 26, he calls a servant over and asks what these things meant. Now, friends, if there's any place in the world where there should be joy and where there should be music, it would be in the church, don't you think? I mean, in the world out there, it's bad. There's crime and there's sickness and there's murder and there's all kinds of things. There's war. There's a lot of bad stuff happening in the world, but there is one place where God calls a refuge for his people. And if there's any one place where on earth where there should be joy, where if music is coming out the windows, people would not be surprised. Now, what in the world? This young man comes by the church, he hears music, and he is 
confused. Must have been a dull church <laughs> before, don't you think? Verse 27. So the servant said to him, Your brother is come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. And then it says, And he was angry. From a human perspective, and I think from our perspective in any case, there's no reason to be angry at this point. This man should have been rejoicing like everybody else because his brother had come home, but he was angry. So now we've got to take a little time and begin to look at things from his perspective. Why is he thinking the way he's thinking? Well, first of all, you've got to consider that it's his younger brother. His younger brother left home and he's done no work around the place at all. He's, in, he's taken his father's money, he's taken his inheritance, he's gone out and he's enjoyed parties and booze and drugs and sex and sports and sin of all kinds. This is what he's done. And now he's got the gall to come home, he's got the nerve to come home with his hand outstretched, needing help. And worse than that, the father responds with help. The father is immediate. The father receives him with open arms and he gives him help and he doesn't give him what the elder brother thinks that he deserves to get, you see. And the, brother is, the elder brother is confused because if the elder brother had been the father, he would have had something to say to the younger brother. But no, the father receives him and he applies the merits of the fatted calf to the younger brother. There's been no penance. There's been no work. The, the boy has spent no time on probation. While he himself, I mean the elder brother, has always obeyed, he's always worked, he's denied himself the pleasures of sin, he stayed with the church, and he did all that hoping to be saved. He did all that hoping to be seen of men. He did all that hoping to be thought of as a good Christian. He, he was hoping to receive the robe, he was hoping to receive the ring, he was hoping to have the shoes... Uh, he was hoping to be given the gospel commission and he received none of it. And the big question in his head is, why? How come I have done everything right? He has done everything wrong. He receives everything. I receive nothing. He cannot understand. He cannot understand. He does not realize that his type of religion does not make him better than his brother. Did you know that being a Seventh-day Adventist does not make you better than a Baptist? Does not make you better than a Roman Catholic, a Muslim, a Hindu, whatever, Buddhist? It does not make us better than other people. Did you know that you are every whit a sinner, as much a sinner as those people out there in all the other churches or outside of churches altogether? Did you know that we are as bad as the worst of them out, out there insofar as sin is concerned, insofar as we ourselves are concerned? Do you know that our only hope for the kingdom of heaven is in the cross of Calvary and is in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and there is no other hope for us or for anyone else? Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. Now I know we've been talking like this all week. And now I'm having a hard time not repeating some of the things I've already said because we've said a lot of stuff this week. <laughs> we're in Romans chapter 9. We're looking at verse 30. In Romans chapter 9, there's a comparison here being made between 
the Jewish people and the Gentiles. The elder brother represents the Jewish people and the younger brothers represents the Gentiles. And this is what we have. And I want you to see what Paul has to say about the elder brother here and the younger brother. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles, that is the younger brothers among us, which followed not after righteousness. And you need to notice this. These people, the Gentiles, did not follow after righteousness. And I believe that Psalms 119, 172 says, All thy commandments are righteousness. Something like that, anyway. Yeah. And so, in essence, what it's saying here, that the Gentiles followed not after the keeping of the law. They did not try to keep the law. And yet it goes on to say that in spite of the fact that they followed not hard after keeping the law, they have attained to righteousness. They became righteous. Not trying. Isn't that amazing? Even the righteousness which is of faith. And so by faith they laid hold upon a power outside of themselves and they received righteousness. Not focusing on trying to keep the commandments, just focusing, I suppose, on Jesus Christ, right? And the gift of God and, and, and the goodness of God and their hearts were so welled up in gratitude that they didn't want to do something wrong. They didn't want to hurt their Savior. They didn't want to do bad. And so they ended up righteous, not trying to be righteous. Verse 31. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness. Well, of course, we all know about the Jews in the days of Jesus. They multiplied laws in an effort to protect the Ten Commandments, and they tried really, really hard. Oh, they had so many laws to keep in an attempt to be righteous. And yet it says here, though they followed hard after the law of righteousness, they did not attain to the law of righteousness. And the next question is, why not? Why, wherefore? Because they sought it not by faith, but as it were, by the works of the law. If we go on to chapter 10, starting with verse 1, I believe the Apostle Paul explains all of this. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel, that is for the elder brother, is that they might be saved. And I bear them record that they have zeal for God. They're very not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant, the most educated people on the earth probably at that time, were what? Ignorant. Is it possible to be ignorant? Even we, is it possible for us to be ignorant? Ah, friends, there is a gospel, there is a true gospel, there are plenty of false gospels. For every truth, there's a thousand lies, and it's possible to buy into one of those thousands of lies, and think we have the truth. And that's what they thought. And they were ignorant. That's what it says. Verse uh, 3, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness. What about God's righteousness they were ignorant about? They were ignorant about the fact that God's righteousness was a gift. That's what they were ignorant about. Watch as we read. For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the gift of God's righteousness. It's just that simple. And I suppose if they can fall into this trap, this ignorance, then I suppose you and I can fall into the same ignorance. And then, verse 4, Christ is the end. He's the fulfillment of the law for righteousness to everyone 
that believes. The broken law demands two things. First of all, the broken law demands that we live a perfect life from the day we are born to the day we die. The law will not compromise, not for one sin. If you lived the perfect life from the day you were born to the day you die, but only sinned once, you have broken the law, and the law demands the second thing, is that you die an eternal death. Well, friends, we haven't, we can't obey perfectly, can we? We haven't obeyed perfectly. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we don't want to die. Can you see how hopelessly lost we are? Can you see it? Well, yes, we're absolutely... Do you know that if you live perfectly from today, if you could get on your knees and say, God, I promise you, I promise you, I will never sin again, and you manage to do it, supposing you manage to not sin from today until the day you die, do you think you'll go to heaven? No. Do you know why? Because you've already sinned. Sure. If a man should be before the judge and he should go to the judge and say, Judge, I know that I have committed murder. I really am sorry, but I promise you, I promise you, I will never kill another man in my life again. What do you suppose the judge will say? Well, you're not on trial for the people you might kill in the future. You're on trial for the one you've already killed in the past. It's already done. You're already guilty. You're already going to be punished. There's no turning back. There's no turning back. And you and I, friends, have already sinned. There is no hope for us except in Jesus Christ, of course. God so loved the world. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And when the only begotten son came down here, he was able, taking our lives upon himself, to live a perfect life from the day he was born till the day he was killed, till the day he died our atoning death. And after he died, he resurrected, he went to his father, and in the one hand he presented his perfect life, and in the other hand he presented his atoning death, and God the Father said, it is enough. Give the human race my righteousness. The righteousness of God, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. By the life of Jesus Christ and his atoning death, we find salvation, and there is no other way. Did you know that? The elder brother didn't know that. The Jews of old didn't know that. The Christians of today, many Christians of today, and all the other world religions think that religion and good behavior and hard work and a reformed lifestyle will make a way for them into the kingdom of heaven. Consequently, the, the Jews lost their place as God's chosen people. The elder brother never wore the robe, never wore a ring, never had the shoes, never was given the feast, all of that. And unless, my brothers and sisters, unless you and I will get a grip on the gospel, unless we can understand this and internalize it and receive it fully and thank God every day for it, we may well be as lost as these people we're talking about. Turn with me to Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. There's a little parable here in Luke chapter 17. It really uh, seems to paint Christ a little bit out of character in Luke chapter 17. We'll begin reading with verse 7. But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say to him by and by, when he is come from the field, go and sit down to meet. And will not rather say unto him, Make ready wherewith I sup, 
I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Now notice, I said that Jesus is a little bit out of character here. Jesus came to serve and not be served. However, he is giving us a parable and he is talking to us about the way we do things in this world. You don't hire a servant to serve him. That doesn't make any sense, right? When you hire someone to work for you, you expect him to work for you because you wouldn't hire him otherwise. So this is all that Jesus is saying. Verse 9. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were con commanded him? No way. He, he, he pays him. <laughs> That's all. So he says, I throw not. Verse 10. So likewise you. Now notice here. Likewise you. When ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you. When you have kept all the commandments, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Do you see it? If you manage to keep all the commandments, Jesus says, it counts for naught as far as your salvation is concerned. Our friends, it counts for a lot insofar as your witness is concerned. It counts for a lot insofar as you're glorifying God in the sight of the world and other people. Oh, it's very valuable. The Lord wants you to keep the commandments. I'm not going to try and teach you tonight. We don't have to keep the commandments. But I'm trying to say that it doesn't count towards your salvation insofar as your justification is concerned. Now, now, we are justified by the blood of Christ at the cross of Calvary, period. That's it. That's where our righteousness comes from. And when we receive it, we have it in reality. We will do right. We will do good. But it will contribute nothing to your salvation. It will contribute to your reward. And that's a wonderful thing. How would you like to end up in heaven with no reward? I think some people will be there that way. <laughs> well, I doubt it. We could weigh that, I suppose, a, a long time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, somebody will say, well, doesn't the Bible say that it's hard and that you have to work hard to get into the kingdom? Well, go with me to Luke chapter 13. You know, I'm keeping you in Luke so that you don't have to turn a lot of pages. Luke chapter 13, verse 24. It seems to say there that we have to work really hard in order to be saved. We're looking at verse 24. The first word, at least in the King James Version, is strive now my margin says, strive as in agony. That seems pretty hard, don't you think? Have you ever agonized? You know, have you ever decided, well, I think I'll spend the afternoon agonizing. <laughs> That's pretty hard, isn't it? Yeah, you can't agonize on command. You, have, you agonize only when you really have something to agonize about. And so here we are, the, Jesus is commanding us to strive as in agony to enter in at the straight gate. Okay, I want to enter in at the straight gate. Let me go to my room and strive as in agony. And I'm like, how do you do that? It hardly, I mean, how do you do that anyway? But that's what it says. Strive as in agony to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able because it's so hard. Isn't that what it seems to say? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what it seems to say. But do you know, friends, that's not what it's saying. Mm. Yeah. What is the gate? Do you know? Oh, Jesus. John chapter 10. Go with me. John chapter 10. We need to read it. I want you to see it in John chapter 10. We're looking at verse 1 and then verse 9 in John chapter 10. 
Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that enters not by the door or the gate into the sheepfold, but climbs in some other way, is a thief and a robber. Verse 9, I am the door, I am the gate. By me, if a man enters in, he shall be saved and shall go in and go out and find pasture. But if we don't enter in by him, will we find salvation? So when this is talking about striving as in agony to enter into the straight gate, it's not necessarily talking about our trying with all of our hearts to be good so we can be saved or our trying with all of our hearts to keep the commandments so we can be saved or trying with all of our hearts to be to perfect character so we can be saved. It's really talking about guarding ourselves against thinking we can save ourselves. Do you know that it's hard to switch from self-dependence to faith in Jesus Christ? And that's where it says, strive as in agony to enter in through the right gate. Jesus Christ. Find your salvation in Him. Strive as in agony. But I tell you what, we ought to get on our knees sometimes and just plead with God to give us an understanding, the understanding that is lacking. Now, I'm going to digress just a little bit here because it's not in my notes, but in Early Writings 269, I don't know if you know Early Writings 269, it's a chapter on the shaking. Elder Frizee used to say, if you're going to study one chapter in all of the spirit of prophecy on your knees, that's the chapter you need to study on your knees. And I have studied that thing over and over and over and over again. It's an amazing chapter. And you will see that it always points to the future. It always points to the future. And it says, in the future, Seventh-day Adventists, at least part of the Seventh-day Adventist congregation, are going to get on their knees with strong faith and agonizing cries. They're going to plead with God. Why? Because they want a victory. Now, wait a minute. Are we not a victorious people? Friends, we are not a victorious people. No, we're not. God is wanting to make a demonstration such as has never happened in this world. He wants to use us. It's not going to contribute to our salvation, but it will contribute to the demonstration that He wants to make, and we are not able to make that demonstration, and we're going to wake up to this fact one of these days. There's another group in that chapter that is, uh, it says, uh, how, should, how does it say it? They're um, not interested, they're, they're lackadaisical about it, they're, they're thinking everything, they're indifferent, that's the word it's using. It says they're indifferent and they think, well, everything's fine, I mean, what are those guys doing anyway? And they don't get the victory that the other ones are getting and they're swept away. That's what it says. And as soon as we get this victory, whatever it is, the latter rain is poured out. The great shaking comes. And it says that the destiny of the church hangs on one verse in the Bible. Did you know that the destiny of this church hangs on one verse in the Bible? Now, you couldn't make it more simple, could you? God says, listen, one verse. Your destiny hangs on one verse. Do you know which verse it is? It's called the Council of the True Witness. It's verse 18 of Revelation chapter 3. Buy of me gold tried in the fire and white raiment and I salve. The destiny of the church hangs right there. Isn't that amazing? Anyway, that wasn't part of the sermon, but it's free. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. We're going to continue where what we started. The elder brother, excuse me, I'm talking about the rich young ruler here in Matthew chapter 19. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. He wants to know what he must do to be saved. Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, I've always kept them. 
And then he asks, what lack I yet? And Jesus is willing to tell him what he lacks yet. Yeah, did you know what he lacked? You see, he was putting his trust in his riches, and Jesus said, well, you know, you'll never get to heaven by putting your trust in your riches, so I tell you what, here's what you lack. This will save you. All you have to do is go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, come and follow me. Verse 21. You know, the, the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because it didn't make any sense to him. Do you know that it didn't make any sense to the disciples either? You see, the disciples, being Jewish, had the idea that if an individual was wealthy, he had the favor of God. So already he must have been saved because he was wealthy. He was young, he was good-looking, he was wealthy, he wanted to be a disciple, he was attracted to Jesus, and the disciples were thinking, what a catch! What a catch! If Jesus would just draw him in, and Jesus repulses him, it appears to the disciples. Jesus is actually telling the man what he needed to do if he wanted salvation. He was turning his head away from that which he trusted to put his faith in Jesus Christ, and the man wouldn't do it. Now, the disciples misread this whole thing. They misinterpreted, and they thought Jesus is chasing him away, and it doesn't make any sense. So Jesus finds himself having to, having to explain to the disciples why he did what he did. Now, watch. We'll start with verse 23. This is his explanation now. Then said Jesus to this, the disciples, Verily I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly, that is with great difficulty, enter into the kingdom of heaven. And they're like, no way. That doesn't make sense. He's already rich. He's already got God's favor. What are you saying anyway? You know, and Jesus is just blowing away their minds. And so he decides to illustrate it in verse 24. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Traditionally, at least in the past, our evangelists used to say that there was a little door on one of the walls in, that, that surrounded Jerusalem. There was a little door on the other side that was called the eye of a needle. If the main gates were closed in the evening and people were too late to get into the city, they could go around the city and find a little door called the eye of a needle and if they found it they would have to take the stuff off their camels and carry everything through this door and then the camels would have to get on their knees and then they would just have to fight to get through this little door with their camels but they could do it but do you know that this is not a proper illustration do you know that this would destroy the gospel if that's what jesus was meant meaning no, it's not a proper illustration. It's not true. Jesus was not talking. You cannot be saved even if you work as hard as a camel to get through anything. No. When Jesus was talking about putting a camel through the eye of a needle, he was talking about a sewing needle. Now, I'd have a hard time putting one hair of a camel through the eye of a sewing needle, never mind putting the camel. Why was Jesus talking that way? Because it was... Impossible. It was impossible. And Jesus wanted to make it as plain as he could make it that it was impossible. So we see it in verse um, 25. When the disciples heard it, they were exceeding amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? If a rich man can't be saved, nobody can be saved. As far as they were concerned, this was what? Impossible. Well, that's what Jesus was trying to tell them. Verse 26. 
But Jesus beheld them and said to them, With men this is what? Impossible. Friends, it's still impossible. There's no way you can save yourself. There's just no way we can save ourselves. It is impossible, and it says so right here in the Word of God. It is impossible. But we're not left to die. The rest of the verse says, With God, all things are possible. Yeah, yeah. And if you go to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, we're looking at verse 23. In Mark chapter 9, Jesus said to him, If thou can, canst believe, all things are possible to him that believes. With God, all things are possible. All things are possible to you by faith, if you believe. Do you know that faith doesn't do anything? Do you think you can be saved by exercising faith? No, no. No, no. Faith doesn't do anything. Faith lays hold upon what God can do. That's all. That's why it was given to us. So we can lay hold upon what God... And what can God do? Anything. And what can you do by faith? All that God will do for you. Sure. And God has promised to do all kinds of things for us. It's amazing. But it's God that does the doing all the time. All the time. Without me, you can do nothing. So don't go ahead thinking that you can build a character, that you can build a life, that you can stop sinning, that you can do all of these things in order to be saved. It is not possible. The only way that you have God's righteousness is to lay hold upon God and ask Him for it and believe Him and trust Him and He will work it out in your life. He's promised to do it. So why is it so hard for a rich man? Chapter 10 of Mark, verse 24. This is the same story. This is the story of the rich young ruler. And we're just going to look at verse 24. Same story. And the disciples were astonished at his word because Jesus was saying it was hard for a rich man. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? Do you know that you're rich? Friends, you don't have to travel very far. I don't know if Leroy and his wife are gone or still sitting in here. But they've seen poverty to a degree in any case. I don't think Kenya is the poorest place in the world. But there's a lot of poverty there. And my wife and I have spent a lot of time in Madagascar, very, very poor in Madagascar. In Zambia, in times where there were famines and people were dying everywhere. And we've seen all kinds of real poverty and you are not poor <laughs> not poor but if you don't have a lot of money you're still rich did you know it God has given to everyone something some of you have youth and strength some have beauty some have education some have intelligence some have wit some have whatever whatever all the talents that the Lord has given us and it makes us Wealthy. Do you know that our great danger is to put our faith in the gift that God has given us rather than in the giver? Oh, that's our big danger. And it, not necessarily money. It can be all kinds of things. All kinds of things. Well, anyway. This is the elder brother's condition. That's where he was at. He was putting faith in himself 
and in his talents and in his religion and in his own experience and in his own good works and in his, his external keeping of the commandments and he was deceived. So now we need to look again at the elder brother. We need to take another look. If the elder, if the young brother had been just an acquaintance, if he had been a distant relative, he had been a friend, if he had been a neighbor, and the friend had thrown away his salvation, the elder brother might have felt some compassion for that individual. But don't miss what's happening here. This is not a friend or a distant relative or an acquaintance. This is his brother. It's a family member. It's a partner in the family firm. His selfish action has jeopardized the whole establishment. His rush into sin took no account of the suffering that he would cause his family. His was betrayal of sacred ties. It was treason in the highest sense. And the elder brother suffered keenly the shame and the reproach and the insult. Now, the problem with the elder brother was that he could not forgive. All he could think about when he was thinking about it was the pain and the shame and the embarrassment and should his brother suffer nothing what can we do to him to make, it fe to make him feel what he's made us feel how can the father forgive so easily can you begin to feel the frustration that the elder brother was feeling have you ever had that kind of experience how would you have related to the young, to the young brother to the young rascal when he comes home with his hand out having been partying for months and years or whatever it was it was has anyone ever caused you that much pain that much humility humiliation that much suffering is there anyone in your life that you can't forgive I preached that one time in my lifestyle center And one, one of the women that was there took me aside afterward and she said, do you know how hard that is? <laughs> she said, I had a good boy. He loved the Lord. He grew up in the church. Everything was fine with him. And then he met another Seventh-day Adventist boy who led him away to take drugs and ruined his whole life. But the other boy came back. My son never did. And you're going to ask me to forgive? Can you imagine how hard that is? Is there anyone in your life you can't forgive? I don't want you to raise your hand for sure. If there's anyone in your life you can't forgive, how are you going to deal with that? If you go with me to Matthew chapter 6, you remember Matthew chapter 6. This is the, the Beatitudes. And we all know what Jesus said there. And it's enough to make anyone tremble. He really actually sounds legalistic, doesn't it? We're in verse 14 and 15 here. Jesus is speaking and he says, If you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And it sounds as if Jesus is saying, You have to make the first move. Go ahead and forgive, and as you forgive, I will forgive you. But that's not the right interpretation. That isn't what Jesus Christ is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is that if you cannot forgive, it's because you don't have forgiveness to give. You cannot give what you have never received. If you have never accepted forgiveness from heaven 
from God, then you obviously won't have any to give. Turn with me to Luke chapter 7. And we're going to finish right here. Luke chapter 7, we're almost done. And we're looking at verse 47. And this is the story of Mary Magdalene. She's just visited her uncle Simon, where Jesus was a guest and her brother Lazarus was a guest. And she's dumped this perfume on Jesus and everyone's found out and people are complaining, starting with Judas. And even Simon is thinking that Jesus can't possibly be a prophet because he's allowing this woman to touch him and all of this stuff. And he doesn't know what kind of woman she is. Do you know who dragged Mary Magdalene into, into sin anyway? It was Simon himself. Yeah, verse 47. We're in Luke chapter 7. We're looking at verse 47. Wherefore I say to thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loves much. But watch now. But to whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. Do you see it? You can't love if you have never received it. You can't forgive if you have never received it. And let me read it to you from the Spirit of Prophecy. This is Christ's Object Lessons 251, paragraphs 1 and 4. Nothing can justify an unforgiving spirit. He who was unmerciful toward others shows that he himself is not a partaker of God's pardoning grace. If you don't have any, you can't give any. That's all this is trying to teach. We are not forgiven because we forgive, but as we forgive. The ground of all forgiveness is found in the unmerited love of God, but by our attitude toward others we show whether we have made that love our own. And if you have not made that love your own, you cannot possibly forgive. And if we can throw that upside down, if you cannot possibly forgive, then it's a sign that you have never made that love your own. There are people who have forgiven stuff that human beings cannot forgive. What was her name? Corrie Ten Boone? You remember her story? Oh, yeah. I don't know the story very well. I don't remember it very well. But there was this officer, and these girls were having to parade naked, going to showers, and he heaped all kinds of insults and whatever, and whatever he did to her sister, I don't know, may have resulted in her death. I've forgotten the story. And then she meets him so many years later. You know, the war is over. This is America or somewhere. And she's giving meetings. He's in the audience. She meets him. And what a struggle to forgive. Yeah. But she did forgive. There was only one way she could forgive. She had received the forgiveness of God for herself. Do you know that she was not any better than him? I wonder if she realized that. I don't know. But friends, you and I can realize that. We are not better than anyone else. And if you look down your nose at anyone at all, you're missing the boat. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, it says we are to esteem all others better than ourselves. How many others? Well, is Jesus saying that there are some people who are not worse than you? No, he's not saying that. He's saying that that's how you treat them. That's how we treat them. We treat everyone as if they were superior to ourselves. What would it be like in this world? You know, I'm stealing from tomorrow's sermon, just realized it. What would it be like in this world if everyone treated everyone else better than themselves? Ah, friends, it would be heaven, wouldn't it? Because that's how heaven is going 
to be. Shall we pray? Please stand with me. Heavenly Father, Lord, I appreciate it when I can see the mess I'm, I am, but I am so grateful that there is a solution. I'm so grateful for the plan of salvation. I'm so grateful that you don't leave me to my mess. I'm so grateful that I can feel my need and that you've promised to meet it. Lord, I thank you and thank you. And may you, by your Spirit, go through this whole hall, touch every single soul with your love. Open our hearts to receive all that you have to give, that we might have something to give also. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.